Andrea Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another special mashup episode of T4C. This month marks the fifth anniversary since launching T4C way back in August of 2018. And over the years, I have had the pleasure to interview so many accomplished and incredibly wise 20-somethings. Still, just because they're accomplished doesn't mean they haven't struggled or failed or face-planted at some point in their career journeys. But through it all, they prevailed. And it took a lot of perseverance, positivity, and perhaps even a little magic. In this mashup, they get into it in the hopes of inspiring and motivating you to keep pushing no matter what. If you want to listen to any or all of these guests' original interviews, check out show notes for this episode to find a link. Okay, let's start the show. And in order of appearance, my guests include Eve Rosenbaum, who, when she and I sat down for our original caffeinated chat, was the manager of international scouting for the reigning World Series champion, Houston Astros. Today, she is an assistant general manager for the Baltimore Orioles. Gabriel Sebastian, who, when he and I first sat down, was a program manager in Mexico at Population Services International, also known as PSI. It's a global health organization. Now, he is the founder and CEO of Zolo Custom Guitars, making and selling his own guitar designs. Jerry Lee is the co-founder and COO of One Sulting, a company that teaches people the skills they need to go after their dream jobs. Emily Ray is an emergency response team leader with the St. Louis chapter of AmeriCorps. Esme Stribling-Hoff is a global public affairs senior coordinator at Weber Shandwick a marketing communications firm. Jimmy Hickey is the founder and owner of Findlay Hats, an action sports hat company that he co-launched out of his living room in 2013. Jennifer Garibay was a technical sourcer and recruiting operations specialist at ADECO. Today, she's a program manager at Google. Johnny Pearl is a production supervisor at Cinemation Studios based in L.A., and he's worked there since 2016. Jonathan Javier is the founder and CEO of Juan Salting. His mission, and the mission of Juan Salting, to turn underdogs into winners. 
And Justin Nguyen, an entrepreneur, a speaker, and a podcaster, and he's currently the host of the Declassified College Podcast. It's an iTunes Top 50 show, as well as being the CEO and founder of Get Your Grind Up. Eve, one of the questions that I try to ask all my guests on Time for Coffee is to share a story with our community about a time in your professional life when you may have struggled. It may have been that you had a challenging supervisor, boss, or colleagues, or maybe you were in over your head, which my goodness, that happens all the time and just had to like really power through to make it out of and to the other side of that challenging experience. Have you had anything like that happen? Yeah. Definitely. I've had tons of challenging experiences. And in my current job, every time I sign a player, if he then doesn't perform well, that that every single time that's a challenging experience. So I deal with that on a day-to-day basis. You know, specifically looking back at my career, when I was at the NFL, I was working on our NFL mobile application. So there's the iPhone and Android app. And I was working to recode it so that we could measure what users were doing in the app. So it was a lot of tracking that we were doing. And I didn't study that in school. I was not a computer engineer, but that was the job that was assigned to me. And I actually found it very interesting. And I had to teach myself. I didn't teach myself necessarily to code, but I had to teach myself. It's called Omniture, which is the it's the codes, the variables that go into an app or to a website. That's the software that measures what users are doing. So I had to teach myself a little bit of that code. I had to teach myself how to interpret the data. And then I had to work with our developers who were actually coding the app. And a lot of them were based in India. So I was living in New York City and they were based in India. So the time difference was maybe 14 hours. And so we had a summer where we had to get this app recoded and sent to market. And I remember flipping my schedule to work basically overnight so that I would be awake when the developers in India were awake. You know, fortunately in New York City, that's something you can do because there's food 24 hours a day. And if you're waking up at 11 a.m., there's other people who are waking up at 11 a.m. New York City is a great place to have a flipped schedule. But, you know, I remember doing that. There were tons of late nights. There was a ton of pressure to get this thing done, but it ended up paying off because I think that it was something that helped me get the job that I'm in now where when I was interviewing for this, I said, Hey, I'm willing to flip my schedule and, you know, totally blow off my fun summer times to work with people on Skype in India to get a product done and just and to teach myself an entirely new skill set in a couple months so that we can get this product to market. And that's, it's sort of analogous to what I do now where I'm working with people in other countries, there's language barriers, there's cultural barriers, there's constant new skills to learn. But I think the fact that I did that and I flipped my schedule helped get me to where I am now. The first one was definitely Harambe. You know, I felt like I was on top of the world. Being a global finalist, they treat you. It's kind of like the, the hype Silicon Valley gives to potential startups that crash and burn like a few months later. So once we got to the global finals, we were surrounded by people who were just flying us all over the place. We were doing interviews. Our pictures were everywhere. I think my picture is still in this other website. Uh, you know, I felt like I was on top of the world. And when that collapsed, I wasn't... I, I was... 24. I wasn't really prepared. I, I guess I have mentally, I wasn't prepared to, to fail. 
because uh, I felt like I kept winning in life at, until that point. And I, uh, that to me was a huge wake up call um, because when that collapsed, I, you know, I, I was having a hard time trying to think like, how do I even look for jobs? Because I'm, I went straight from school to my own thing and sort of got used to being my own boss. And I, I didn't like the idea of losing. And I think that what I did is after a few months of being just almost depressed about the situation, I noticed that the reason I wasn't fig- finding anything is because, uh, you know, I, I had this, I wasn't looking at my, my self-worth was down the drain. So I stopped doing everything that I was doing and I started focusing on, I guess it sounds a little corny, but loving myself again, realizing, you know, I'm, I am worth it. I'm a smart kid. Uh, I've, I've achieved a lot of things. And I try to change the narrative that instead of, oh, I, I, I totally failed, started uh, changing the narrative. Like, I'm, actually, what have I learned from this? And the moment I started doing that, I started changing my applications based on that. So my cover letters were all but like, oh, this is what I've learned from my failed startup experience. And I started getting a bit more positive responses. So uh, that that period of time has probably been my lowest professional uh, so far, my lowest, uh, hopefully the only one in in my professional career. My self-worth was down the drain. I had no idea how to apply for jobs. I had no idea what it was like to work for a boss. Because even when I was working for a startup, we had a CEO, but everyone was sort of always autonomous. So it was really different. And it just took a lot of sort of pausing, reflecting, and realizing that I wasn't going to get anything until I started believing in myself that I could. And I think that's important to know, especially now when it's so it's so difficult to get uh, jobs. You might send 200 applications, you might hear from two or three. Just never let that that sort of ter- um, performance, I would say, like a ratio of two out of 200 is kind of weak. Don't let that affect your own self-worth. It affected me. It was it was really crappy. At one point, I had no money because I, I, I wasn't working at the time. And uh, I was living off lentils and onions for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Never again will I do that. So, um, and it, everything changed when I started seeing my own self-worth again. You know, two examples come to mind. And I'll choose a more recent example because I feel like this is this impacted me significantly more. I think once COVID hit, we had sort of been all remote first. And for me, I'm very extroverted. I love seeing people in the office. I love whiteboarding. And so when we sort of transitioned into a workforce environment, it sort of forced me to go, whoa, like I definitely need to change my working style. As I was sort of going through that transition period, I noticed myself being very anxious. I would pick up on like small nuances and conversations and overthink things and go, whoa, does that person really not like the work I did or I would have these sort of thoughts. And because I was so used to just seeing people tapping them on the shoulder and mixed in with sort of my upbringing of, you don't want to bother people, right? Like everyone's doing their own work. Just, just do as much as you can before you ask for help. It sort of made me feel like I wasn't in control of sort of the work I was doing. I wasn't in control of the deliverables that I was outputting. And I remember there's one project where I just overthought every little nuance. And we had told our VP that we were going to deliver this project as part of a three-quarter plan. And because I had pretty much overthought everything, I did nothing for that quarter. It delayed us. And we had to have a pretty difficult conversation with the executive because this is one of our biggest priorities. And so as a result, it made me feel like, man, maybe my my manager no longer trusts me as much. Maybe as a result of COVID, maybe I'm just not going to perform as well. 
I got severe work anxiety where I wake up feeling paralyzed and, and I felt like I was sort of on a downward spiral, but thankfully I had the resources to reach out to a therapist. And by the way, I am a huge fan of therapy. I believe everyone should, no matter who you are, no matter how great you're feeling today, you 100% should talk to a therapist once a year, just like you go to a doctor for your physical health. To me, that was everything feeling of two things. One, reaching out for help when I need it. And I don't always have to go through the ends of the earth and do everything myself before I reach for help. Sometimes it's okay to reach for help before I get to that point. And the second thing I've learned is that there needs to be a separation between work and my personal life. And for me, I struggle with that a lot because I've been so focused on making sure I do well in my career that I deprioritize sort of what made Jerry, Jerry. So that point in my, in my career, which I felt like was probably one of the lower points, but I took those learnings and I sort of incorporate that in my lifestyle today where I'm like, you know what? I will not have meetings before 10 AM. I will stack my meetings on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays and Tuesdays, Thursdays are my more relaxed days where I can do amazing podcasts like this. So it was sort of a very dark time for me, but as a result of this, I took those learnings and I'm like, now I have created the ideal life that works for me. Yeah, honestly, I think back a lot to when I like first graduated college and was working on an organic farm. And I like after a month, I or kind of during the month, I realized that the farmer, it wasn't really okay for me to make mistakes or like learn on the job. And I realized like how important that was to me because I, I like love learning and like, I was trying hard. So I think I was really struggling with that because I, I kind of thought like it was my fault. Like I wasn't really communicating enough about like what I needed. But then I realized like it just wasn't envir- an environment that I was going to be thriving, learning and happy. So and then at this point, like in St. Louis, it kind of feels like the opposite of that environment because we get like new training all the time, especially as a team leader. I'm like constantly learning new things now. And it was interesting because I thought I was like, Oh, I was talking to someone in the program and wondering like, how much am I really going to learn about chainsawing this year? If I'm mostly just like teaching the first years how to chainsaw. But then he was telling me you can just, like refine so much of what you've already learned and make yourself better still through teaching people. And I definitely think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say coming back to the Ukraine war and and coming out of that experience, I had been working, you know, solely basically on the, our response to, to that invasion and to supporting we ended up having a distribution list that was almost 700 names of people who were getting that um, uh, from from markets all over the world. And so I was coming off of that that work. We were winding it down. There was sort of a status quo being established. And I came back to my manager for a check-in just about how I was doing. And I was, was actually feeling really good about it coming into the conversation. He's like, oh, I just managed this whole crisis response. Like we got so much great feedback from clients saying, you guys got there faster. You got, you gave me exactly what I needed to be counseled and do well. So I was feeling really confident. And I came in and I said, you know, well, what can I do to improve? How can I, how can I build on 
basically I was thinking, how can I build on the success? And my manager kind of said, well, you know, I, I'd love you to do your job. And I was like, what? Um, and I didn't say it. I obviously didn't, didn't say that with her, but I was flabbergasted because I thought, oh my gosh, what do you mean do my job? I've, I've been doing this great work. Like I've been getting this wonderful feedback. And she's like, yeah, but you're not doing, you know, I need, I need help with these projects. And it was the updating the, the databases and doing the administrative work that really is keeping the practice running. It was updating her on the day-to-day stuff that I had put aside. And she was obviously aware of my work on responding to Ukraine, but it was a huge lesson to me that as you get more work, as you get different work, as you get pulled into new things, you were hired to do whatever it was that the job, the role required. And those need to continue to be your responsibilities, even as you're succeeding elsewhere, because otherwise you're not, you're not meeting the need that they needed when they brought you on. Wow. So here you were in effect crushing it on Ukraine, but all the other stuff, the kind of day-to-day stuff had gone by the wayside and that's totally understandable, right? Because there was this crisis that you were doing your darndest to keep on top of 24-7. And yet you didn't think about the fact that all that other stuff still needed to get done. Oh my goodness. So how did you respond? Yeah, I, well, it was in the moment, um, I was happy to be on Zoom because there, I, I did need a moment to, to compose, but it was, I, I was sort of, after getting over the kind of flabbergasted of what do you mean I'm not, you know, doing this job, I realized that she was right and that I hadn't been paying that attention. And it was really important because it was, that was the bread and butter. That is, you know, the work after the crisis. So it's, it's really critical to, to maintain that, that work. And it ended up making our relationship stronger as she kind of talked through like, well, what, you know, what is it that I, that I need to be delivering you? How can we retool this so that it's packaged in a way that you like, you know, what are your priorities as we're resettling? to to make sure that I'm giving you what you need. And that has made our relationship stronger. It's built more trust. It's it's made me more confident in other, you know, less monumental feedback just in terms of my growth, but still like important room for development feedback. I, I'm able to hear that better and take it in faster and, and adapt. So that experience for me was actually the entire year of 2019. Last year was an extremely difficult year for business for us. 2018 and 17, we saw explosive growth and we couldn't keep up with the sales and we were just crushing it every single day. It was awesome. And we were bringing on new equipment and taking on these big projects and doing all this stuff and it was awesome. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, like, all right, let's, we, we've, we got, we got caught up. Let's try to keep growing. And right around that stage, we kind of hired two extra people that we, we didn't need, but we projected we would need if we stayed on this trend. And then the sales just kind of stopped. And we, like a business our size, cash flow is always an issue. And we're very reliant on day to day sales to keep us afloat. And, you know, our break even point was extremely high. So, 
basically the sales funnels and the strategies and everything we had done up to that point that was working like clockwork just stopped working. And when I talk about Facebook being a cruel mistress, that's a good example of it because our return on advertising and our daily sales just significantly dropped. And through 2019, we just had a really difficult year when it came to sales. It was a constant battle of making payroll, being able to pay our bent team's benefits, being able to pay for inventory, stuffing out of stock because we couldn't afford the bulk inventory until this payment came through and owing money. And long story short, it was a really challenging year. And it all came from cash flow problems. And it all came from our sales. And it all came from the strategy of scaling and growing wasn't working anymore. So that was the problem. And the fix was just to do a deep dive into what was working, what wasn't working, and what we needed to do to survive. And I met with a financial advisor who I, I meet with a couple times a year. We reached the conclusion that, okay, our sales are, are not going to be back up to where they were last year. So now we need to make where the sales actually are. We need to figure out how to make that work. How can we spend half the amount in advertising every day? How can we spend half the amount in, in you know, these other expenses and cut this and this and that? And through that type of stricter budgeting, again, it kind of put us back to the power of broke. It put us in a position of, okay, if we only have this amount to spend in advertising each day, how are we going to maximize that? And that kind of made us rework our strategy and that made us adapt the two major changes. We started offering a premium mystery box where it's just a bunch of good stuff for $100 flat. Higher ticket item means we can spend more in advertising to bring in customers, but still get good margins and then they still get great value. And then two, we started doing those weekly launches where we would launch new styles of hats every single week at a limited run. So that built up demand and drive and added even more people to our collector community. So we took the bad sales and pivoted and regrouped and figured out, okay, how can we, instead of trying to focus on scaling the business, we just need to sustain the business. How can we sustain it? And those were the two strategies that worked for us for uh, sustaining the business. Love it. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jimmy. Yeah, absolutely. It was a challenging, it was a challenging year. Probably the most difficult year of my entire life was 2019 because it was just a constant battle every single day. I mean, worrying about finances. I got in a car accident and got paid out by the insurance, I think like 3K for the car that I, that I had. And I was able to live off that for, I think, two, three months without paying myself just because it, you know, it needed to be done. There was funds were so tight. Yeah. I would say that my biggest, and you all can't see it, I'm air quoting right now, failure, because truly I believe, you know, rejection, failure, it really is redirection and setting you apart. But my, you know, my biggest failure over the years, I'd say is, would, would be my not making it into nursing school in college when I had attempted to do that. You know, I originally had started, you know, at UTEP in my hometown of El Paso, Texas, had been a shoe in for for the nursing program there, but did decide that I had wanted to, you know, leave town. I wanted to go spread my wings, go elsewhere and try a more difficult program as well at Texas Tech. So I decided to, of course, then started working full time, supporting myself, doing all these things to sort of take care of myself. And, and during that time, I was unable to, you know, obtain the sort of volunteer hours and sort of clinical setting that they really were requiring of me. And so I didn't end up making it into nursing school. And, and in the moment, it was, it was a big deal to me. There was, you know, a lot of crying, a lot of, a lot of, you know, maybe depression for a week, not a true depression, but a lot of sadness, you know, for a week, a lot of feeling like a failure, a lot of shame. And a lot of it came from me just feeling like, 
I had lost my purpose. You know, what am I going to do? What What is the next step? There could have possibly be anything else, which now looking back, I, I laugh now. I'm like, you were like 24 years old thinking your life is over. Like how, how naive are you? I mean, there's, there's so much more out there and there's so many more opportunities, which would lead me to my segue to say that, you know, you can do anything you want at any age. You know, there are people who go back to college at, at 55, 60, 70 to get a completely new degree. There, you know, you can you can go to college, go get a job, hate it for a month and go straight back to college and get another degree. You can get an amazing internship and go straight into a job or you can work at a mom and pop shop for 10 years and then go to big tech. But my point is, is that everyone's experience is different. So honor yourself, honor your story and and just know that things are going to work out in time. And, and don't rush it, especially all, all you college kids out there, all you, you new grads, don't don't rush it. Things will unfold in front of you. Just be patient. It's hard when you see everyone around you doing all these exciting things, but but your time will come. So just be patient. The first thing that comes to mind, right at the start of COVID lockdown, so March 2020, things were kind of slow as the world was figuring out how to adjust to this new normal, work from home and a couple friends and I, who I've produced shows with, live shows with in the past, and who also have an affinity for watching the reality television show The Bachelor, decided, what if we produce a show for singles that are at home during COVID, and we call it Love is Confined, because there was a popular TV show called Love is Blind, what if we play off that, Love is Confined, and we set up singles that are living at home during COVID on virtual dates and we style it as a tiered dating style show. We, over a couple weeks, had a great time. We set up many dates and a couple couples came out of that dating show. Um, really? That's cool. Yeah. And we had fun because it was something that was new for us and we were producing in a new format. And the plan was always to, we recorded everything we had all of their, we'd set it up on a Discord channel. So we had all of their text messages, all of their videos. We recorded everything. And the plan was always to edit this content and release it to the public in some way. Ultimately, by the time we had actually finished our little experiment, I'd say the production of this reality show, we got to the end and we had so much footage and life was kind of picking up again in a way that all of our other jobs were taking over. And none of us were ready for how much work there was to do to actually edit this content and put it out into a world in a digestible format. Even though we had fun and we did our project, we failed in that we never put it out into the world. Like we're just sitting on this content. And so the lesson from that would have been to plan, (laughs) to not underestimate, right? Any project that you put yourself into. I think we all underestimated the amount of work it takes to edit and produce reality because we had never done it before. So if we had talked to someone before who had done this or brought on someone who is a more professional editor or someone that had had that experience before, they could have warned us, like, hey, just, you know, this is going to take a lot of time. None of us were anticipating the amount of time it would have taken. So don't underestimate projects that you are signing up for. 
100%. Yes. I would say a pivotal moment for that rejection was when I was interviewing at LinkedIn. LinkedIn was my dream company. And I remember I had four rounds of interviews. I thought I crushed the interviews. I was so excited because the recruiter was like, oh yeah, Jonathan, I'd love to talk with you on the phone to give you an update. And I was like, wow, they're going to talk to me on the phone. I think this is going to be an offer. Called me and said it wasn't an offer. He said there was another candidate. And that's when at first I was like, man, like these companies don't want me. But then I realized that I shifted my mindset. I was like one step back, 10 steps forward. And that's when I networked like crazy to get into Google instead. And then I even went back to LinkedIn to do a talk there for their HQ on their offsite for their strategy team about how to use LinkedIn, which is crazy, right? So, (laughs) yeah. So I think that moment was pivotal. And what I say all the time is something good came out of that, which was that. But not only that, I made an article and it went viral in regards to like millennial lessons from getting rejected by XYZ. It had about 10,000 likes on an article on LinkedIn. Unbelievable. Crazy. So that's what came out of it. There's always good things that can come out. That's what I say. Yeah, 100%. And I think, I think, right, just with the world of social media, we tend to think that people live this perfect life. I mean, I'm at fault for it as well. But even when people do post things of their failures, I feel like we always forget about those. And we only look at when they took a trip to Dubai or they took a trip to Japan or whatever it sort of may be. Now, for the biggest failure for me, it was probably the Get Your Grind Up podcast. And the reason I say that is when we were running it, we were probably running it for a year and a half to two years back when we were in school. And we thought that we were doing well, but it was really just stagnant. And we never really looked at the statistic. We were just looking at our our listens and downloads going up. But when we looked at the statistics, we found that most students were dropping off after the 10 to 15 minute mark. And we were like, why are students doing this? Like we're spending an hour long episode and students are just dropping off after the first 10, 15 minutes. We need to find a way to retain their attention. And what ended up happening is we wanted to just cut the show, put it on hold for a little bit because we didn't know how to best create an interview show that would capture students' attentions. And that's where we came up with the idea of Declassified College, where it's short, five to 15 minute long episodes, different perspectives to add that vlog-esque experience and to retain the younger person's perspective. And it's been doing really well. And we've already gotten past what we were at for Declassified College or for Get Your Grind Up, sorry. And it's only been a matter of six months. So it's been absolutely a crazy journey. But I think the lesson there is everyone's going to fail. If you don't faceplant, then you're probably not reaching high enough in terms of what you could do. But from the faceplant, what can you take from it and what can you learn? And for me, for the Get Your Grind Up one, it was making sure that you stay consistent with your analytics. Listen to what people are telling you and don't just be blind because you want to succeed so much. And I think that's a huge lesson for anyone, especially when you're young, to, to really understand. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. 
And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the Coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712.